JV Knowledge Podcast Network. On episode 83 of the InsureTech Geek Podcast, talking about where VCs and InsureTech are not paying attention with Jeff Shee from QuoteHound. The InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JV Knowledge, is all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. We'll be interviewing guests and doing deep dives into specific tech we see changing the industry. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech, so enjoy the ride and geek out. Man, oh man, oh man, oh man, it is another day. April Fools. Yes, it's April Fools Day. Um got to love it. Uh it is April 1st as we record this 2022. Finally got used to saying the correct year. Uh just in time for the second quarter of said year. Uh with me as always my illustrious co-host, the most interesting man in insurance, fellow Texagander, Rob Galbraith. What is going on, Roberto? Yeah, happy April Fools Day, James and Jeff and uh that's yeah, interesting. My oldest daughter last night asked me, it's like, tomorrow's April Fool's Day. Does our youngest, like, does she know it is? And um, it happens to be around the time that we adopted our family dog. And my 12-year-old just is in love. She wants to be a vet when she grows up. So our dog's name is Zoe. So we kind of call it Zoe's birthday because we don't really know when her birthday is. So it's when we celebrate. So um, it's actually been a good distraction because she kind of forgets that it's April Fool's Day. Now, I'm worried about school, but uh, we'll see. We'll see. So, so far, so good. No pranks. Oh, geez. I'm not big on pranking people, Rob. Like, I, I love humor. I like comedy. I enjoy having fun with my friends. But pranks, to me, always toe the line with some, like, something that, that might really hack somebody off. And so I'm always like, ah. I think I'm gonna. I I I don't know, man. I mean, maybe if it was my kids, I could prank my kids pretty easy, though, because pranking your kids is just good, clean dad fun. You know, like that's that's uh that's uh that's that's totally fair game. I agree with that. With us too from Northern Virginia, otherwise known as the Washington D.C. suburbs, Jeff She. What's going on, Jeff She? Thank you for having me. There's like two rock stars here. I'm glad to be on the podcast with y'all. <laughs> Man, we're glad to have you on. Jeff Sheets from Quote Hound. Oh. And uh, we're going to have a good ch- we're gonna have a good conversation about what VCs and InsureTech are not paying attention to. There's a lot of things they are paying attention to, and they're investing a lot of money. You know, there's a lot of money being put at work. Of course, right now is a little bit of a different time. Funding's crunching down a little bit right now. IPO markets cooled off in tech, and that's impacting the secondary private equity markets. But but that's okay. We're gonna we're gonna talk about where the money is ignoring right now, and that's a, that'll be an interesting conversation. I want to remind everybody out there in listener land if you're watching this in our live stream on Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, on Vimeo, where we store it. We got a lot of places we push this video. If you're watching the video, uh, you can subscribe to this podcast simply by texting Geek Out G E E K O U T to 66866. Make sure you never miss an episode. Uh, so it's geek out to 66866. Um, and you can uh, listen to all the sh- you get all the show notes too. You get all the, all the guests. We have a, we, we, we do about 48, 50 of these a year. And uh, you can really uh, hang out with us. We'd really appreciate you hanging out with us. Um, in addition to that, I just wanted to point out that I would love to see some comments and questions from our listeners. Now, this is something I've been doing on my other podcast for some time now. Um, I've, I've had a, an open text line that I think has been particularly useful for people texting in questions and texting in. Uh, of course, I like it because people text in memes, right? Uh, I, I enjoy receiving all the memes. Now, um, Rob Galbraith, I'm going to give you one guess and one guess only as to the common memes of the week that dominated this week on my uh, on my text line from my other show. <laughs> it's got to be the slap for old Ronda World. <laughs> I mean, it's got to be the slap. It's got to be the slap. I have never seen. Now, first off, I was like, 
holy cow, did that happen? Now, of course, none of us in the United States saw the actual slap in real time. The Australians did. You know, we have a time delay in the United States since they edited it out. And then, like, when Will Smith got up and was, like, accepting his award and talking about, like, love making you crazy, we're like, uh, okay, didn't understand it until like, the internet got bombarded with Will Smith slapping the hell out of Chris Rock. So that was definitely the meme of the week. But I, I'm just, I just wanted to roll this out there that um, if you have questions, comments, or suggestions, or you want to text us the meme of the week, you can text it to 979 473 9040. That's 979-473-9040. I would love to hear from you. If you have suggestions for future shows, if you have uh, questions, comments, if you wanted to just text me a funny insure tech meme on Slap of the Week, like I would love to see like that like with an insure tech meme. So go ahead and send it. I love memes. 979-473-9040. So back to our special guest, Jeff She. Jeff, we're going to talk about quote how we're going to talk about insure tech in a second, but first... We're going to talk about you. Now, you went to high school. You got a high school uh, deal from Chantilly High. Um, but before that, you weren't born and raised up in Virginia. Tell me, like, where were you born and raised? I was born and raised in Beijing, China. Mm, back in the old school Beijing. Not like the yeah, modern. Back in the old school. Not like the modern capitalism Beijing. Back in old school, ride bike uh, since I was five years old to school. Yeah. So it's about our bike ride each way. And I, since I was five years old, I, do that on my own in, in a in a city with 23 million people and 3 million migrants that go into the city to work every single day and um you know so i have a two-hour bike ride every single day since i was five years old to 11 years old and um the parents were fine with it just kind of like how we used to let our kids go outside and play until you know internet came around and the crazy pedophile came around and we're like no you're staying home right but <laughs> yeah this is like know. back back in the day like i remember now, by the way, did you say an hour bike ride each way? To school, yeah. To school. And Beijing gets cold in the wintertime, doesn't it? Oh, yeah. Beijing is like Chicago cold. <laughs> yeah. Did you actually like, like is little Jeff yeah. Shee, is little Jeff Shee on his bike that was me. in the snow? That was, the- <laughs> that was 100%. That was me. Yeah, oh, my God. So imagine 7 o'clock in the morning, you know, because uh, our school is different. Our school is like between 7 to 5. Yeah. So no time's different. Uh, and uh, it's it's uh, it's fascinating the, the differences. I'm 42. I'll be 43 this year. So um, was was raised in the early 80s. You know, late mm-hmm. 80s, like when kids just kind of ran feral, right? Like you just did yeah. you did whatever you wanted. My 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 general rule, like I would get home from school in Baton Rouge, and I would like drop the backpack off, go eat a snack, and then run outside, get on my bike, and disappear. And my mm-hmm. mom would be like. Get back by the time the streetlights come on. Like that was kind of the guidance. Like with the streetlights are on, I'm supposed to be home and we're gonna have dinner. Um, yeah. And like now, if my girls like literally leave the property, it's like be careful. Take your tracking tag. Take your phone. Let me know where you are every five seconds. <laughs> like, Life Life 360 app. I, yeah, I mean, like man, my mom. I don't even know how she did it because she had no mm-hmm. idea what I was doing. So you grew up in Beijing, and uh, what was like the the childhood dream? What did you want to do growing up? Ooh, what I want to do in Beijing growing up. Wow, that was a good one. It's like Chairman um, Mao's China, right? It's like this was like a yeah. this was like a different time in China. So like what was the what was the so aspiration? To graduate middle school to move on to high school high school selection process, right? And um you have to achieve English three. So they have English one point oh, two point oh, three point oh. The world reserve is dollar currency. Yeah. The world language is English. So China government prepared their little soldiers, little minions for the next battle, the next decade, the next century. So just to graduate middle school, you had to learn English. And so you can get into, apply, right? Apply with high schools and get into high schools. And then, you know, your your ranking in the social world, whether dating or coolness will be based on where you get accepted to high school. Yeah, so you, so you grew up in a very competitive, very tense environment. And you managed to graduate middle school, which yeah. then then what what was the what well, was? Well, I came here when I was eleven years old, so I didn't experience that last part. Yeah, I knew you that were I close had two to years it. ahead of me. You were that in was middle school. Intense. Yeah. yeah, you were in middle school, and you you felt the pressure, and you knew it. So so then 
your dad like what happened? Like one of your parents got a job in Virginia and you came over there. What was the what was the, the impetus so to come to the mom, States? When I was five years old, she left China. Um, she came over to University of Maryland and she was a student there. She applied for a visa. And um, she went to UM for a little bit and um, she was working minimum wage jobs, graduated University of Maryland and um, applied for a visa. And then, you know, my dad and I came over. My dad delivered Chinese food. Um, first first year delivering Chinese food, robbed twice at gunpoint for less than $40. That was the introduction to rest in Virginia. And, um, and uh, I was, you know, stabbed three times. You know, I was jumped. I was suspended four times my junior year. I was expelled from my high school and went to a new high school. And then my first week there, I got suspended for a week. You know, it was uh, trying to be accepted in a culture. It's, it's different, especially we had a little bit of us um, gang violence in the school. So Yeah, so I mean, it wasn't like you had like a, a welcoming committee uh, with open arms no. giving you a gift basket saying, welcome to America. It was kind of like, yeah. welcome to America and here's your punch in the face. Yeah, yeah um, that's tough. My, my high school, my high school dream was to live past twenty five. So it wasn't. It was my big dream at the time. Everybody dreamed big, and that was my big dream was to live past twenty five. Yeah, past. 25, You're like, yeah. I, I'd like to have a life expectancy longer than twenty five. So yeah. then you, what, what happens? Like, what changed? I mean, what? Obviously, from that point to now, there's been a world of a change in you as an individual. And, um, like what, I mean, first off you, you right after the, this high school, right, right after your high school experience, you jump into auto sports and I've got to understand this. I am a, I am, I like to go fast. Me and Ricky Bobby like to go fast. So I like, yeah. I like anything that flies, anything that floats, anything that goes fast. Right. So yeah. t- tell me what, could- tell me how that, how you got started with being an owner and manager of an auto sports company right out of high school. So funny story, uh, I was 18 years old. I turned 18 and then my friend was like, let's go to club. And then me and a couple of friends of mine, we went to club and then I get my first beer with the X on my hand, right? Cause I'm on the age and um, taking the first sip and then the bouncer caught me, grabbed me, about to kick me out and then grabbing all my friends. And then I ran to the owner of the club or the management group. And uh, he was like, where are you going? I was like, I'm leaving cause I'm getting kicked out of this, this dumb club, right? <laughs> and then uh, he was like, this is my club. <laughs> And he was like, and I was taking these three girls with me because, um, you know, I came with them. He was like, well, I don't want you girl with them. And then he was like, why don't you stay? And he gave me like, band. <laughs> he started chatting with me. He was like, do you know a lot of people? I said, like, yeah, I know some people. And he was like, well, I'm putting together a promotion group because I'm taking over four other clubs that's struggling. And I'm going to be running them and I need more people. And um, and I was like, okay, I can help. So turned out he gave me a job that night and um, nobody knew how old I was because when I was 18 years old, I look like how I look now, right? Like even bigger, like worked out more. And um, and so I started working at four different nightclubs, Wednesday night, Thursday night, Friday night, Saturday night. I did guest lists. I did promotions. I did bouncing. I did VIPs. I did, you know, whatever you can think of. Yeah. And um, later on, I saw his business plan and I replicated it at 18 years old. I started going to all the other failing bars and clubs in D.C., 18 years old, walking by myself, asking for the owner and just say, hey, I know you have nobody here. It must suck. What I want is 100% of the door. I'll keep 100% of the door. I'll bring the crowd. You keep 100% of the bar. And I need about 200 or $500 or $1,000 of bar tab a, a night to treat my VIP guests, but they will spend money here. So I started getting my own night's book, and I hired seven promoters, uh, five bouncers, two, two DJs, VIP girl, cashier girl, guest list girl. And um, at 18 years old, that was my first corporation. I went to government center and set it up. That is, and, um, that, is the, that is the best. That is probably one of the best startup stories I have ever heard. I mean, my first business was when I was 12 cutting lawns. And then I, I, I was fixing computers and teaching people how to get on the internet at 16. At 18, you're, you're going out and running a full-scale club yeah. promotion circuit <laughs> i mean yeah you, wednesday night thursday night I friday mean, night and uh, then and know, then coming back coming back to high school right i'm still senior in high yeah school yeah, yeah you're still in high school i mean this was your Remember, weekend activity <laughs> like sometimes like our our nights ends at 3 30 4 yes. o'clock i get home by five yeah. and i'm like waking up the next day at like 7 30 to go to high school <laughs> and i'm like sleeping right and then like 
waking up. I was one credit away from failing high school senior year. And tell you about my my cousins, right? I have four cousins in the States and one cousin back in Shanghai. My one cousin back in Shanghai is a partner at PricewaterhouseCooper, which is a fine yeah. establishment. He has 300 traders underneath him. He's a partner, right? I have another cousin who was top world-class chess player, world-class piano player, went to a, um, a, high, a college in Harvard, right? When SAT was 1,600 for a perfect score, he scored 1,580. <laughs> and he had a full ride to Harvard, worked at this company called Microsoft, and he was chief growth strategist officer next to a guy named Bill Gates. <laughs> and um, I have another cousin, McKenzie Group. I have another cousin, um, Cyber Company. So, so I have a so, whole family so, so your mom of and dad, super smart people. Yeah, your mom and dad are like, what is going on with Jeff Shee? Yeah, they're like, <laughs> what is wrong with you? Why can't you be like your cousin? That was like what I heard my whole life. <laughs> all my cousins scored over 1,500 on SATs with their eyes closed. <laughs> and they all... They all had like multiple offer from like McKenzie, like you know any any legitimate firm you can think of, you know just in these brilliant white collar jobs, and then me, you know just bombing around at these nightclubs, you know in the shadows, right? But you know it taught me a lot, right? It taught me about survival, about building business, about tax models. And um, while I was still in high school, I remember this kid was going through this magazine called Super Street. Jason Darn is his name. Shout out to Jason. And um, he passed it on to me. And I'm reading this magazine. I was like, people are lowering their Honda Civics, putting exhaust on them. But it was intriguing to me because it was a West Coast thing. And I'm an East Coast guy. And it was big on the West Coast. So turned out that the person I mentored at the nightclub, he also had a daytime job. He had a, he had a car performance shop. It wasn't a performance shop like lifts modifications it was a performance shop just selling bolt-on parts and uh he was getting about 40 percent margins on these bolt-on parts because you know you had these montgomery county maryland kids who just got parents money and um it was also a cool thing to do to modify people's cars so i replicated the business and um i had two jobs right i had nighttime club promotion and daytime i worked at regular jobs right i had i worked at circuit city and um, told me about inventory, told me about organization. And um, so I started this car performance shop with a couple of credit card lines and some savings. And then went to a, a show called SEMA. Special oh, yeah. Equipment, I love SEMA, man. That's, yeah. that's the aftermarket show. That's that's where you get to see the cool things people do with all their vehicles. Yep. Made all my connection of the West Coast companies, right? I had a tag list, right, of all the part the manufacturer the brand that i want to carry in my shop and um these guys all started say okay so be our wholesale distributor in the east coast in this area if you start with a buy-in of 20 grand we'll give you this territory 50 grand will give you the state uh 250 grand will give you this region and our total credit line was 10 grand for the entire company so i had to do a lot of con convincing about trying to tell people to believe in me and I had six companies fronted inventory on a 30-day net and 45-day net. And I had to turn all those inventory around within those time frame where I was going to be out of business. Yeah. So I learned that at 19 years old. And I'm still doing my nightclub thing where I'm under attack because I was set up by the owner one night where we had a big night of 15 grand cash. And we had five guys that was like straight up out of the wire, you know, surrounding me so i had to learn survival on multiple friends so it's like that was 15k of door take i mean that's yeah, it was cash geez, what a deal man you know so you so you roll through nightclubs at night evolution auto sports during the day learning about receivables cash flow you know hardcore bootstrapped lessons like where you're trying to figure out how do i make ends meet how do i how do i finance mm -hmm. this operation you don't have a vc behind you you don't have investors behind you this is just literally Jeff she figuring things out. Yeah. And then five years into the business, you know, we started doing drop shit before eBay and Craigslist, yep. right? Before all of that. We were on these car performance forum with like S2KI, which is S2000 groups, 350Z groups, super groups, super groups. And um, we're meeting people around the world and doing drop ship and direct ship before e-commerce was a big thing. So I learned it on AOL dial up. So I was using AOL dial up while shipping, you know, the beginning stage of e-commerce, right? Um, the business was booming, but the margin wasn't there. So my business partner and I had a disagreement. 
I want to take it to the next level by dynos, full performance fabrications. And uh, he want to stay at the current level. So we decided to part ways. But before we part ways, we went through three breaking entries where we had, at one point, we kept an AK underneath the register. And um, I just told my wife at the time, I was like, you know, I hate my life. Like, this is not wise enough for this. Like, I don't need to be fearing for my life. Like, worry about who's robbing us and who's breaking to our shop next just so they can steal a couple hundred dollars from us. And, um, you know, so so the so the company and um, didn't know what I was going to do. Went on to sell cars. And uh, went on to sell cars just because it was something that I bumped into. And I did that for five years and had a lot of success selling, just selling cars and learn about the internet business. Um, one of the biggest takeaway was leadership skills and CRM because I was one of 20 salespeople that leveraged CRM systems. And um, that's when CRM just starting to roll in the car industry. And um, 20 salespeople on the floor selling Cadillacs. I was averaging 43 cars a month and 19 other salespeople was doing about eight to nine cars a month each. And I allowed to use technology to manage me versus me trying to manage that technology. Yeah. Yeah. It's, uh, it's huge. You know, I, I still, cause I'm, I'm, you know, one of the, one of the chief salespeople here at, uh, at JB knowledge. Uh, and, and I, I'm an animal about my CRM system and always have been, cause you have to be right. I mean, it's, uh, it's impossible even for even for really really bright people to keep up with everything and you you've got to you've got to let your your tech manage you in some cases uh you know it's 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 hard to do well you got into insurance uh 11 years ago so talk to me mm-hmm. about how you you wound through nightclub promotion great cash business to uh to auto sports to selling cars and learning about sales and CRM um, what landed you in insurance? So I had like a really good year before the last year in car business, you know, made some good money selling cars. But I also had a, a export company, you know, when a lot of third world country was being really developed during that time in 2010, 2011. And um, Colombia, UAE, Saudi, Russia, China, that's when their country starting to give some wealth, some money, and uh, everybody wanted American SUV. So whether it's Range Rover, whether it's BMW, whether it's Mercedes, you know, Mercedes made in Tuscaloosa, Alabama. BMW SUV is made in Spartansburg, South Carolina, right? So, you know, even though they have factories in China, factories in Russia, but they are tiny little factories, right? Like our factories are monster factories. But their demand was so much more demand over there. So they wanted what's here. So exporting was a big business. You know, United States were exporting about 2,000 SUVs out through the retail dealership into export, into um, the retail store over there because they couldn't keep up with the demand. So I did that for a little bit and made like 600,000 in six months. But I always wanted to be in insurance. And um, why? It's a cool story come from the insurance. So one day I was selling cars and uh, I got a phone call from upstairs and my finance director at the Cadillac dealership at the time called me and his name is Mr. Lee. So I stepped into Mr. Lee's office. I'm just thinking, "Uh uh-oh, what did I do now? Am I in trouble, right? And Mr. Lee took his glasses off. And he's in his, you know, late 60s, mid-60s. Mr. Lee said, Jeff, you remind me of myself. I'm thinking like, okay, I'm Chinese, you're Korean. You know, we're the only two Asian in this dealership. That's probably why. And he said, you have work ethic like I've never seen before. You remind me of myself. Do you know what my regret is? I have three sons, 25, 23, and 21. I was never there for them. I work 14 hours here with you every single day. You have a son, right? I was like, yeah. At the time, my son was like one year old. And um, he was like, get out. Wow. I was like, I was like Mr. Lee, I made what, 40 last year, right? The most I ever made, owning my own business was like, 50. And um, Mr. Lee was like, look, I made 250, but if I can do all over again, I would not be here. I said, like, what would you do? What, what do you recommend me do? Mr. Lee was like, there's three businesses I think you would be great at it because you have to work ethics. Real estate, mortgage, insurance. But I really like insurance for you. I said, like, why? He was like, you work seven years and you can go play golf. <laughs> I was like, no, forget about golf. I don't care about golf. <laughs> Tell me why. And he was like, I see credit applications when people want to buy cars. I know what people make. 
And I have State Farm friends where I just talk to them because they spend more time wanting to talk about the car. I spend more time wanting to talk to all of them about what they do. Some of these State Farm nationwide guys, they make like 500, 600. I have an all state friend that makes 700. I was like, really? And then also what inspired me was there's a guy named Gary Whipke for Paul Hank Alexis. Like, he had a salary like 1.2, 1.3 million a year as a general manager, and he gave profit share. But for me to own my own dealership is such a high mountain to climb because you got to have serious backing. And then also, it's kind of like the good old boy club where the manufacturer decides who gets what point, right? Who gets a Lexus dealership, right? Yeah. You got to have serious connections, and those are generations connections. But I thought that only my own agency was more obtainable, and I can grow from there because I have my work ethics. And also because I have a I can do attitude, right? Um, so I took his advice and um, started saving my money. But I went through a really bad period where I was spending more money than I made. I had a $1.2 million house at the age of 25 in 2005. Right. Yeah. Um, I had my, my wife at the time had 13 Louis Vuitton bags, you know, Gucci, Chanel, Burberry stuff. I had a gun safe that had more guns that I actually shot like 90% gun. I didn't shoot. I just collect them. I was just having a bad habits of buying things I don't need. And um, so I didn't have the capital to build my own insurance agency. So after five years, went through a bad divorce, went through an economy change in the 08. I finally saved my money, got all debt. And um, was ready to go. So I called Nationwide, and um, they never called me back. I called Progressive. They told me, go sell captive insurance or work for somebody or go to an aggregator for five years and call them back in five years. And then called State Farm and had three interviews with State Farm. And then I didn't pass the last one because my background check didn't pass because I had a short sale in 2008. You know, through my divorce, you know, I had a house I bought that didn't worth what it was worth. And um, I would say, call me back. They're like, so do you have capital? I said, yeah, I have 140000 They're like, you have a post? Come on in, right? And um, they were just trying to get any scratch agent they could at the time. And so I came on board. And um, I came on board with two people day one, right? Open the sh- after two months of training, open the business, never sold insurance, never handle claims. I remember handling that first claim call. Right. I've been through fights. I had all kinds of things happen in my life. You know, so many things that most people never go through their life. But that first claim call I had to take was the scary things of my life. Right? <laughs> I had no idea. I said, like, don't F this one up. The guy right? who got surrounded by a bunch of folks at a nightclub demanding his money was more scared by a claim call. <laughs> yeah. You know, because I wanted this business. I want this business as a forever business. I don't want to F it up. Right. So when you don't want to F it up, you don't think about F it up in a lifetime. You think about by the year, by the month, by the day, by the call. Yeah. Right? I don't want to F that call up. So next thing you know, we survived. But we didn't come nearly of what I anticipated. I'm like, okay, year and a half in, I just dumped 140000 of my own savings. We have a tiny little book. That was like $800,000. Because Virginia is the 48th lowest auto premium, 44th lowest homeowner premium. And we are a captive agency with 12% closure and no broker lines. I remember this one day, I, it was a Saturday. You know, I have custody on my son on the weekend. I took him to Chick-fil-A, right? And um, I slid on my credit card, bounced. Company credit card, bounced. Company check card, bounced. Com- personal check card, bounced. Four cards at Chick-fil-A for like number three and number six, I think. You know, that's, that's our thing. And um, I drove my son back to my ex-wife's house. I said, hey, you know, I got something that came up. You got to take him this weekend. I couldn't feed him. Mm. That was like, I think, on the 11th, right? And in the, in the insurance world, we could pay our compensation deposits 19th of every month. So everything you did previous month, you get paid on the 19th of that month. So for the next eight days, I called up. I made a list of every single friend I hadn't seen in a long time. And I said, hey, what are you doing? You don't want to catch up? I'll come over to your house. So I knew that if I come over to their house, they would cook for me. <laughs> so I had no money for food. Jeez. And I couldn't borrow money for food. So I had to figure out a way to get myself fed for the next eight days. I couldn't tell my employees that I can't feed them because one has four kids. And one was actually 
the mom of my son, you know, my ex-wife came over. She was like, you better put your whole saving into this business. I can't let you fail. So both of them quit, quit their jobs. And then my first two employees, they were both making ones, making over six figures, ones making close to six figures because they believed in me. They knew that I had an ambition and drive. So long story short, after that incident, I reached out to my mom who I haven't had a relationship with over 13 years and she let me borrow some money and then my business survived. And then I learned the difference between a startup and the scale up. And I put in seven different cores. And then those seven cores are things that I talk about. I'm a speaker at many captive insurance carriers events to their agents and independent agents events. And then those seven cores are people and hiring recruiting, um, cash flow, cash reserve, um, technology, tech stack and CRM, leads and marketing and process and documented process and training and coaching. You know, I can go to each core, almost like a whole episode into podcast, talk about each specific core, why I do things this way. But I believe you cannot have any of the success without one of the seven, especially when you want to go from a startup to a scale up. Um, our business is amazing, amazing business. But if you look at the failure rate, right? SIA, they have 10,000 agents. Right, I'm sorry, 9,100 9, agents, but their premium total is 10 billion, right? That's 1.1 million per per agency. You guys, uh, your audience can do the math. What well, 1.1 million re- premiums is in revenues, and then what is that after one CSR expense and one salesperson expense? Not much. If you look at the if you look at the <laughs> trucking industry, right? Yeah. If you look at the trucking industry right now, every five truckers who's retiring and leaving, one trucker is coming in. So we have 18-year-old getting behind the wheel with no experience, driving 44 trailers, you know, because we're desperate for these supply chain deliveries. But if you think about the insurance industry, we're in the same boat. The people hitting that Florida Margaritaville are on their path, right? State Farm, the biggest premium personal line company, cannot grow over 20,000. Also, it was at 13,000, now to 11,000. Now they're at 9,000 and bought to be at 7,000. You know, they say they're at 9,000. I think they're at 7,000. Some people even say five, right? What they're not telling a lot of the world right now is ever, ever carry rely on di- agent distribution, they're dying because the agency owners are dying because one, the startup have 80%, 86% failure rate the first four years, including independent and the captive world. And two, there's a massive demographic of agents that's leaving that nobody's talking about right now, Right. People say, oh, MA is heating up, MA heating up. Of course, MA heating up because there's so many people leaving at the same time right now. There are thousands, thousands of agents leaving at the same time. You know, one of the things I want to go into later, if you guys allow me to, is the thing that insure tech and the VCs are not paying attention to. Let's go into that. Let, let's go into that now. Let's let's just talk about that now. Where where do you where do you think they're missing the boat? Because distribution is obviously critical to insurance. Um, there are those who have said they're going to disintermediate the agent for a long time. That has not really played out um, because agents are, are still extremely important to uh, to distribution. So, where mm-hmm. where are VCs and and the insure tech? Where 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 are they? What are they missing right now? Right. So, just finishing up my story earlier, my ninth and eighth year was probably where I had the most success in the captive world. I went from two people shop to eight people shop to thirty people shop to fifty people shop. And on my way to 100 people shop. And then I took my process and replicated it. And I have four sales managers spun out and they build their 20, 30 people shop, which is really rare in the captive industry. When every little shop of all state, state farm farmers are like mom and pop. They're like your state, they're like your subway, right? So basically, what I built was I built a domino model, I built a Chick fil A model before that existed, right? And, um, and then I sold $10 million of captive business my last year. And then our first year, when we for quantum insurance, we did $23 million our first 12 months on personal lines with four carriers. So if you look at what VCs are concentrating today, and then we talk about InsurTech 1.0, your Roots, Lemonade, Metro Miles, those are the big names, right? Um, but we're... Lemonade at one point they got like what nine point two billion market cap during their peak. 
And they, they very openly advertise that they don't hire insurance people, they hire tech people, their tech company. But I believe insure tech stands for insurance as well. I believe insure tech is reimagined tomorrow based on today's problem. If you don't come from insurance, you don't know what insurance problems are. You don't know what bog insurance down. So it's harder to reinvent tomorrow when you don't understand what the problem today lies, right? And and I think InsureTech 2.0 and InsureTech 3.0 will really come from people who came from our industry. You know, Liberty Mutual is like kind of like the Bill Parcel tree. There's a lot of impressive people that came from Liberty Mutual that went on, right? If you look at Coterie, Branch, um, ClearCover, and openly, you see a lot of ex-Liberty Mutual people came from that world. Liberty Mutual is one of those companies actually challenge their people to think openly, aggressively, forward thinking. So um, the problem with Lemonade and, um, is they do have the agency channel open up, but it's very limited. And the new business commission, 12 and 8. At 8% renew, renew, you're not going to draw agents who come write your product. And if you look at what COVID has done, COVID has sped up the mobile search process and everything mobile, right? And Q2 of 2021 versus Q2 of 2020, Google saw 47% lift in revenue. Amazon, 27%. Facebook, 22%. And you can go double check these stats, but we didn't grow We didn't grow 27% or 47% in population growth. We didn't grow that much more in searches, or did we? But what happened is the cost of bid went up a lot higher, right? Because everybody is digital, digital, digital. And you have these VCs pouring billions and billions and billions and billions of money into it. Well, guess what? State Farm, all state farmers, Geico, Progressive, they also have billions and billions, but they have more billions than your VC does. So they play in the long game. They're like, okay, you want to drive up the search cost? We'll play this game. We'll drive up the search cost. And then now people like Lemonade, if you look at their cap, their cost per acquisition, Look at Q2 of 2021 versus Q2 of 2020. Their model didn't change. Their people didn't change. Their salary of their people didn't change. Their product didn't change. But they playing this, they playing this zero-sum game with guys who have Warren Buffett money. It's a sick game, right? So if you are stuck in that Google sandbox, you will forever be in Shortag 1.0. And we can just look at where in Shortag 1.0 by just looking at Metro Mile. Roots. So in short, if if Lemonade doesn't reinvent itself and become a 2.0, they will follow the footstep of Roots and Metromile, right? Both came up with brilliant concept, but they got stuck in that Google sandbox. Yeah, because it be, all because of distribution, right? I mean, it's just cost right. of distribution and cost of acquiring leads. Um, mm-hmm. And and digital search. I mean, I, I started, you know, I started this business in my dorm room 21 years ago. And uh, we we built websites for the first several years, and nobody even thought about organic search results when we built websites. It wasn't even on our radar. We built them so that you would have a, you would you know buy ads, like you print ads to, to direct people to your website. They'd have some place to go, and then all of a sudden, Google really became the major way people find found things out. And we we started to, you know redesigning websites to acquire traffic organically. And then we were like, wait, we can buy ads. And they really evolved their ad program. And I was a very early buyer of Google ads. And it was a free-for-all in the early days. It was really cheap to buy keywords. It was really easy to buy keywords. It was really easy to dominate search. And of course, now it's not. And and so, you know, your your distribution costs for any product, not just insurance, Jeff. I mean, any digital product um, has has gone up substantially. I mean, the amount of money I have to yeah. spend on traffic now is substantially more than it than it used to be, and uh, it's because there's a there's a hell of a lot more competition. But not not just from you know the new companies, but certainly from incumbent providers. Yeah. What what led you in? And, and by the way, you hit on one of my rules of building mad scientists, and that is study the problem. That's rule number four on my five rule of building mad scientists, and that is. Spend spend ninety five percent of your time studying the problem before you start building a solution, right? Mm-hmm. So you you spent a long time studying the problem, and you still have. I mean, according to your to your resume, you're still involved in your uh, your most recent uh, uh, insurance play, Quantum Assurance International. Uh, and in September of twenty one, 
you decide to go out and found, uh, you know, Quote Hound. So first off, tell mm-hmm. us tell us what Quote Hound is, and tell us what what, what was the problem you saw. So Quote Hound was a, a lead company that we co-founded with Justin Marks, Kaylin Anchor, Justin Anchor, and it was small, small shop, five people shop, and Quote Hound was just helping Quantum to acquire leads, right? At one point, you know, our vision of Quote Hound is one out of five mobile search in America. We want to bid on it. Right. As we go into more mobile search, we want to bid on one out of every five mobile search for personal line, whether it's home, auto, life, and commercial. And that was the vision. But for the first two years, Kuhan was in a pilot mode of trying to help quantum grow. And the quantum business model is something that quantum is disrupting an area where nobody's paying attention, in my opinion. If you look at all the VC funding into insure tech, it's direct to consumer D2C. 90%, right? 90%, they like, you have API, you're going after data. Here's our Series A money. Here's our C money. You know, we got more money in Israel. We got more money in uh, Europe. It's coming your way. We got more money from Silicon Valley. I would say 90 to 95% is going to D2C. But what if we go to B2B, right? What if this insurance investment into B2B and do a company who are into B2B? So look at everybody investing in, I love, I love my guys at Branch. I love my guys at Coterie and Openly. I think those are fantastic co-founders and founders. They're the hot thing on the block, right? Because Lemonade's 1.0, Hippo's 2.0, because Hippo have distribution and Hippo also have a call center. But I think their call center is going to hinder because it's going to raise their cost per acquisition, right? Because right now people are expensive because we're at a supply chain shortage of people. But, you know, what Branch and Coterie are doing really amazingly is using the independent industry. But if you look at one group of guys in the insurance industry who are just cartels, mafias, Brown Brown, H. Gallagher, Hub International, Willis, Aon, who's trying to disrupt them? Where is the InsurTech VC funding money to disrupt them? There's so much InsurTech VC money going after Geico, going after State Farm, going after Allstate. Well, guess what? Those are hard. Those are really, really hard. Why haven't Amazon, Google, or Apple went after all say safe firm and USA, right? Because they have two models, right? Because people like all say and state farm make their money on variable business model, right? They cannot control your profitability of auto, of home, of umbrella. So their income's constantly in a variable model. But this is the business model that everybody chasing to disrupt. But if you take your over here, let's look at who's head. Their business model is fixed. They get commission on renews. Their acquisition of commission on renew, they acquire little people who go acquire acquisition of premiums, right? And Brown, Brown, Aon, all they, all their business model are fixed operations, right? Where is the insure tech trying to disrupt them? Do you think people like Aon and Brown, Brown have the most... Um, most proven untouchable technology out there? I don't think so, right? If you look at LinkedIn, all the employees are 20, 30 years in. So you can't have disruptions and innovations with people 20, 30 years in. That's just the way it is. Yeah, Jeff, fascinating. Uh, um, I, 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 kind of following up on your theme. So I've seen, you know, you mentioned Brown and Brown. Um, I think of Keystone, AgriSure, some of these companies have really kind of uh, gone in. It, it, you mentioned the retirement, right, of a lot of these mom and pop agencies. And I've met many wonderful agents over the years. And sometimes it's a, I was used to call it the last family business in America, right? They've been passed down generation to generation. And oftentimes that younger generation doesn't necessarily want to take over mom or dad's agencies. And so um, there is a lot of this M&A activity. And we see uh, companies like Acrisure are actually acquiring, you know, an AI company, Tolco, $400 million, right? And so the, they kind of are trying to do this federated model where they're acquiring the tech, they're developing the technology, but yet still kind of having a little bit of that local feel, right? And some of those nuances between state, we know each state is its own insurance yeah. market, et cetera. Um, so I'm kind of curious, like what you kind of think about that. And then, uh, do you differentiate yeah. at all between these? I think of some like Aon Marsh, right. They handle a lot of those large accounts that are going to be high touch. You've got, you know, maybe loss control functions and others versus some of these others tend to be, you know, the small to mid-sized commercial. We see small commercial going a lot of digital, but that mid to large size account still seems like it's bread and butter for uh, your traditional independent agents. 
Yeah, I think you know the biggest opening for disruption is the broker model, right? Like right now, their VC money in short tech activity in softwares, right? Who's going to be the next vertical? Who's going to be the next EasyLink? Who's going to be the next Apply? Who's going to be the next Termica? Who's going to be the next Turborator? There's a lot of focus here, right? And then their consumers are agents. So that believe they believe agents are not going anywhere. But the cluster model, has the SAA changed their business model for 50 years? Has Keystone, which bought a gold IPO, right? Changed their business model for 50 years? Has Firefly, Brightway, where any of these people changed their business models? The answer is no. And I believe there's innovation and disruption into everything, right? So if, and they have a safer model, right? For VC to invest their money is really the all in game when they go after lemonade and roots because they rely on these people to build a profitable insurance company and that's super hard especially you have florida michigan california new york you have these unfriendly bois department of insurance right that is challenging you every single day so i believe the vc should start looking at maybe i should invest my money into the aon business model the SIA business model that whoever trying to disrupt them because they are building on a fixed income business model versus a variable business model, which, you know, for me, if I'm a gambling man, I play the odds that two to one versus trying to play 10 to one, you know, because when you play two to one, you can two to one, two to one, continue growth, right? So that's what I think there's the biggest disruption right now that's available. There's not enough people looking in this direction. And um, that's kind of what quantum is. And what's funny is we're trying to raise our Series A at Quantum, and um, I was getting some personal one-on-one advice from a guy named Steve Lacus from Branch, and um, he's looking through our deck page, our pitch deck, and um, he was like, Kohan, what is Kohan? I was like, oh, you know, this lead company. So I explained the business model to him. Within five minutes, he sparked, right? He was like, Jeff, this is a sexy thing right here. This is what's missing. This is the thing that you guys should be pushing forward. So I changed my role in September of 2021, and um, now I'm heading Kohan, and I'm developing a relationship, you know, building that relationship, and say, hey, how do we, how do we try to grasp, you know, all independent agent and captive agent about moving forward? At the end of the day, two years ago, personal line net growth, 98% belonged to Geico Progressive, and 2% belonged to other billion-dollar companies and hundreds and thousands of independent agents and captive agents, right? There's so much room there for growth. And if I can just took what I learned in the past nine years and then build Kohan into the next decade of what the lead generation is and should be for the next decade, making decisions with leads, right? Right now, a lot of people just buying leads, but they're not making decisions like active decision with leads. It can get crazy the next decade once you understand like how you can use leads to decide where you want to buy. And um, especially nowadays, loss ratio is affected by geographics so much, right? Imagine, let's just say we as a company on personal lines, home and auto, make the most money in Pennsylvania. Let's drill it down. What part of Pennsylvania? Central Pennsylvania. Let's drill it down again. What age group? 35 to 55 year old. Okay, let's drill it down again. Homeowners or not homeowners? Let's drill it down again. Imagine when you are a legacy carriers, regional carriers, or insurance carriers to be able to buy leads strategically in the area that had high retention based on median household income or buy leads with loss ratios in the right area. And you can now grow strategically profitable through your insurance agents. So imagine like a four square, right? The agents the carriers, the CRM, and the lead vendors. And Kuhan is like a little thing in the middle. We are an ecosystem, kind of like Ethereum. Ethereum is an ecosystem that everybody else is in, whether you're NFTs, your blockchain, your DeFi. Well, Kuhan is an ecosystem, and everybody else plays on our ecosystem, and we talk to everyone, and we feed data and share data and help agents to grow into the next level. So, Jeff, maybe just to clarify for our audience, um, Quote Hound, it sounds like you you built Quote Hound um, as kind of an outgrowth of 
building quantum, but yet Quotehound is a separate entity that that is looking for that B2B, helping to work with existing independent agents, yeah. captives. Um, it, 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 do, would they have any concern about the relationship between Quotehound, Quotehound and, and Quantum? Like is Quantum competing with them? Or maybe you can just kind of flesh that out sure. a little bit for our audience. So Quantum, you know, they have, they get their leads directly, right? And Quotehound is separate division, like everything's separate down the middle. Like all of our employees are completely on separate side. We probably talk to each other like once a month at most, but we do have a lot of quantum agents that we deal with. So these quantum agents are people who I talk to personally, who I help mentor, coach, and how teach them how to buy leads. So we work with some of the best lead company out there. Um, from your legacy lead company like Everquill, um, Core Wizard, which is part of Lending Tree, you know, Queen Street, Alpha Media. Um, we're working, we have a great relationship with Data Law. Shout out to my guy, Eric Feynman at Data Law. You know, and we also work with upcoming company, right? Bo Penguin is an upcoming company. We work with a company called Kisterra, who's funded and backed by some, some of the smartest Israeli people in the industry. And, um, you know, we are in a big ecosystem. So we have personal line auto home. We have life. We have Medicare. We have commercial trucking, and we're working on small commercial in a little bit. But our business model right now is we have probably ninety-five percent on the exchange, where we bid across all fifteen lead vendors, right? So let's just say James for a second. James live in Round Rock, Austin, right? Let's just say he live in Round Rock, Austin, and James is like, I really love my area. My area. It's growing super fast. Everybody got a new roof. And I want to dominate my local area. So I can take what James wants and go bid on all 15 lead vendors, 10 lead vendors, whether it's click to calls, internet leads, live transfers, whether it's Spanish calls, whether it's trucking calls, and whether it's Medicare. It just really dominate James' area. I can try to say, hey, you know what? I'm not going to underbid a lead. I'm going to overbid a lead. So this way that we can grab everything in James' area and send it to James and his sales team. So this is like a new way of direct mail, but in the modern way, where it's all feeding into CRMs and the CRMs that's out there. You know, we only work with agents who have CRMs. And then I'm very picky about CRMs we can work with. So they got to have automation process of texting, email, drip voicemail, drip text, drip calls. All five have to be in place before we work with that specific agent. And uh, we only work with agents have specific full-time sales staff size. So this way that we know that my time is valued. Yeah, because otherwise it's probably not going to work, right? I mean, the uh, auto, people expect instantaneous communication when they fill out lead forms uh, or in the, when they initiate a chat session. So that's why you you go into automation routines. Uh, I have to, mm-hmm. I have to ask, since you mentioned it, what are your favorite tools? Uh, I mean, from a CRM perspective or from uh, communication automation, chat automation, what, what do you really like? What do you really like out there? I like, I like CRM that's full package. So anybody who have a CRM have those five tools built out, but that's a full package, either with Twilio or Ring Central already built in. I like people who have cell phones, no hardware phones, just cell phones connected to their laptops. Um, I like companies who have dedicated insurance team because a lot of the CRM companies don't care about the insurance industry because there's so many mom and pop accounts and they don't care about because they're wasting manpower. So mortgage is more attractive to CRM companies and real estate companies more attractive. There's a lot of more company more attractive than the insurance industry. But whenever I recommend to agents, I say, do they have a dedicated insurance team? You know, is this CRM company focused on insurance industry, right? So, and also integration, right? Do they integrate with agency Zoom? Do they integrate with uh, Tarmika? Do they integrate with uh, um, Applied, Vertifor, whatever that is, right? So, you know, these are all the questions that go into. And also, when I start hearing agents, oh, I can custom build this as I stop. Remember the seven core we talked about? Where the tech development and software development is part of your seven core, you got seven hats you should wear. And tech development is not one of them. We have so many agents who want to do everything because they want to micromanage the process. But micromanage the process and not relenting the power is where they stop growing because they get bogged down in focusing on the thing that doesn't scale. So I always try to preach to agents, you know, buy the bento box if you can find them. Yeah. <laughs> buy the buy the bento box. Yeah. hundred percent. Well we buy the Big Mac meal. <laughs> Well, we need to um, 
we need to kind of bring this home. So, uh, so Rob, what's our, what's our last question or, or comment for Jeff? Yeah, Jeff. So, um, that uh, fascinating conversation, uh, you've got an amazing life story. Thank you for sharing that with us and, um, just love hearing your perspective on InsureTech and where things are headed from a, a quantum and now a, a quote hound perspective. Um, just again, for audience members, you mentioned that you're in the process of raising a series, a series a. So, um, who should be reaching out to you? Who are you looking to partner with? Um, whether series a into quantum work well, huh? you know, we just want to focus on people who let, let us loose. Like, you know, we are ambitious and smart people in this industry and we know what's been broken. InsureTech can be built on today's technology with today's problem. That's solve a solution, right? We are disrupting an industry that a lot of people are turning their head around. If you think about what Quohan is, so let's just say you are, I don't know, a farmer corporation and you're typically a West Coast company. Well, you're nationwide, you're typically an East Coast company and you want to grow the other coast. So hypothetically, let's just say you can reach out to us and say, hey, today we're super profitable in Indiana. We really want to grow Indiana. Kohan, give us your list of all your Indiana agents. So here's all my SIA agents. Here's all my quantum agents. Here's all my direct appointment agents. Here's all my Brightway, Keystone, Firefly agents, right? And then I submit a list of 250 people of everybody that's under Kohan that's selling to Indiana. They're like, no, we want more. We want more Indiana. I was like, okay, here's all our non-resident agents who's selling to Indiana. Let's just say now there's 450. They're like, okay. Give us everybody that's buying 20 leads or more. So now you know that they have at least two dedicated salespeople, right? And now the list will shrink down. And then now, let's just say, hypothetically, I am branch insurance. I'm insurtech. I got, you know, $125 million VC money for my Series C, right? I want to spend that in 12 months. How do I spend $125 million in 12 months? Okay, let's go to a place where we're super profitable. And let's go appoint all 200 agents you just submitted to me. And we're going to put $2,000 in each one of those agencies, sales producers seat, right? We already connected on CRM, right? We know they're already buying leads there. They're resident agent, we're not resident agent buying leads there. We know they already know all the state. So now branch insurance who just have the injection of the VC money now through Quohan, they just now access to 200 some agents who we already buy data we know that they buy and leave, they're growing there. And now we get to bid on all 15 lead vendors in the entire state of where we want to grow based on zip codes, on median household income. So we know we can get the retention and we know the loss ratio is going to be good because we have these maps of historic cat zones. We're going to stay out of the cat zones. So this is what future of personal growth look like through the independent distribution channel. I'm going to take it there, right? And if you think about it right now, how does it, carrier like Safeco or Liberty Mutual me, their agents or travelers, they go to these shows, whether it's Big Eye, whether it's SIPIA, right? They spend five grand on a booth, 10 grand on a booth. They spend 10, 20 grand on sponsorships. They send their people making 80,000 to 120,000 there for two days, three of them, travel, hotel, food, dinner, meal. And then they talk to 20 people and they may go home and call back four people and they might a point three, and those three have a failure rate of 80% in the next four years, what can they bring in the return on investment? This model is called Tinder, right? This model is called Match.com. This model is called Bumble, right? But guess what? This haven't been disrupted the last 50 years. Carriers been meeting agent the same way for 50 years undisrupted. Let's bring that to the new century where we have technology, where we can connect people between carriers and agents based on data. Carrier can choose a profile of agent they want to be appointed through data and put money in their pocket, have them grow where they want to make their money in loss ratio. Awesome. Well, uh, great conversation. Jeff, I wish we had more time to uh, to keep rolling on this. Um it's a. Uh, it's been good to get to know you, and I enjoyed the. Uh, I enjoyed the chat all about uh, insure tech, fintech, what VCs and insure techs are missing uh, about the nature of distribution itself. Of course, uh, you're a hardcore sales and leads guy, which I appreciate. Um, so awesome, awesome conversation. Now, Rob, we've got a few news stories we need to to do quickly, but uh, what what do we have happen this week? Yeah, James. So uh, I've got three real quick. Uh, 
you know, it wouldn't be the InsureTech Geek Podcast news section without a mention of Lemonade. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> I know. this week, um, another another announcement. Um, this one really caught my eye. So this is uh, the Lemonade Crypto Client Coalition, uh, which is a mouthful. It's funded by the Lemonade Foundation and it's formed to tackle the problem of um, climate change risk, particularly in areas that are really underserved or not properly served. Uh, by the insurance industry because it's hard to do so affordably. So the coalition is designed to tackle that problem by accurately quantifying weather risks, automating claims assessment, and providing actu actu adequate funding and reinsurance. And the coalition brings together industry-leading partners uh, with expertise in various fields to work on the problem together. It's being designed um, to create highly accurate, fully automated weather insurance models using a decentralized autonomous organization or DAO uh, that is going to build and distribute insurance at cost built based on an eco-friendly proof of stake blockchain. So I found that to be an interesting yeah. one. Um, curious, definitely <laughs> also, a little bit out of left field for Lemonade. But, uh, also, also a lesson in how to, how to load as many high search keywords into a single blog article <laughs> yeah, as you possibly can. So anyway, <laughs> you know, uh, we've talked about parametric before we've had other folks on there. So there's a lot of folks that are working on in this space. So it's interesting to have uh, lemonade kind of jumping into this space as well, but more from the charitable right side of the industry. So uh, uh, fascinating to watch the development yet again, right? There are always the attention uh, seekers and grabbers and do an amazing job at that. And then I've got another one, uh, cyber insurers. This is from the insurance journal face large Ukraine war related claims, despite exclusion. So, um, you know, a lot of uh, companies have exclusions for war or for uh, state actors in terms of uh, cyber. Um, and there's an estimate that's out there that if Russia carries out a large cyber attack, which spills over into several countries, it could lead to claims totaling $20 billion or more, similar to insurance claims for a large uh, U.S. hurricane. Lloyds of London says that it faces major claims uh, from this invasion. And part of the challenge, again, our friend um, contract language and exclusions, and there's a lot of ambiguities in these cyber contracts in terms of language. So um, it, the, basically the article says, hey, these war exclusions may not be enough to protect some of these carriers. So something to watch for sure. And then finally, uh, just a quick plug. I did a webinar uh, a couple weeks ago uh, with Carrie Ann Nadeau from Loop, who we've had previously on the podcast. Um, we were both on a panel um, hosted by Refocused AI. Colby Tunick is the CEO over there talking about telematics and how we can balance all the, the, the data and the insights that you get that have been attractive for carriers now for two decades and have really gotten hot with really a compelling value proposition for insureds, right? That's their reluctance or, or them not necessarily seeing that value add to be a compelling uh, product offering for them that's really held telematics back. And so uh, there's a YouTube video link that we'll send out there. So encourage anyone that's interested in telematics where it's been and where it's going to check that out. Yeah, and if you haven't looked at your uh, renewal yet for your cyber liability policy, um, brace yourself and uh and uh, maybe get a change of underwear ready and uh premiums are premiums are going up um in many cases triple 3x 200% 300% uh can i ask something in there yeah i always wonder why cyber insurance companies don't have all their reserves in bitcoin because their payout is going to be bitcoin yeah right so why not keep your premium so, yeah. <laughs> why not keep your premium if, if at you least for extortion something Let's just say if you're underwriting something for a million dollars in coverage, you're not writing that million dollars not in fiat, right? That million dollars in Bitcoin. So why not the minute the 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 premium money come in, you deposit that money right away per percentage yeah. into Bitcoins or Ethereum's? Because at the end of the day, your payouts Bitcoin and Ethereum's never dollar. That never understood. Like if you look at the CNA hack, the CNA hack, the hackers like they doubled their demand because. CNA took so long. Yeah. Well, CNA as a company probably didn't know where to buy Bitcoin at that volume, right? Like who to use, who to transfer, who to hold it. Like that process is a process. So every single company who offers cyber coverage should have massive Bitcoin, Bitcoin. reserve to yeah. match, right? So if I 
if I am insolvent with the state of Florida, because right now the demo tech is in the news, downgrading 20 insurance carriers in Florida because they don't have enough reserves, right? Versus their premium and then their loss ratio projection claims. That should be done in the cyber world. Like if you're going to have $500 million in coverage, you better have at least $100 million in Bitcoin reserve. Like that should be common sense to me. I don't know why it's not. Yeah. Well, at least collect your that portion of the of the insurance premium in Bitcoin uh, for mm-hmm. for extortion and yeah it's yeah. it's uh, it's it's a it's a fascinating dilemma the real the real dilemma for many folks is that uh, the their premiums tripled <laughs> this year so it's a uh, it's a scary year on cyber well look we we've got to wrap up Jeff She you're the man uh, appreciate it thanks for everything and uh, thanks for being on the show. Thanks, James. And Rob. And Rob Galbraith, as always, uh, thank you for co-hosting. Absolutely, James. Another great episode. Thank you, Jeff, for sharing your story with us. Very fascinating. Yep. And again, thank you for joining us for the InsureTech Geek Podcast, powered by JB Knowledge. It's jbknowledge.com. It's all about technology that's transforming and disrupting the insurance world. I've been your host, James Benham. That's jamesbenham.com with co-host Rob Galbraith. That's endofinsurance.com. Big thanks to Jim Greenley, our podcast producer, and Kara Daltonar, our creative producer. Thank you for joining us today. We're taking you on a journey through insurance tech. So enjoy the ride and geek out. See you next time.